Donald Trump's response when a judge threatened to throw him out of court today, quote, I would love it. The lead starts right now. Outbursts in court, what Donald Trump did as the woman whom a court concluded he sexually abused and defamed, took the stand. E. Jean Carroll's shocking testimony today about threats and harassment. Plus, at the White House right now, President Biden meeting with the four leaders of the House and Senate as Senate Republicans urge their House Republican colleagues to take the deal on immigration and the border and get something rather than nothing. And when school children stop tragedy, the sad reality of the world we're in, see just how often it is the students who are preventing planned classroom attacks. Welcome to The Lead on Jake Tapper, and we start with our law and justice lead in a dramatic day in a New York court where a jury is deciding how much Donald Trump must pay to a woman he defamed, as a jury previously decided. This afternoon, Judge Lewis Kaplan threatened to kick the former president out of the courtroom, claiming Mr. Trump was being disruptive during E. Jean Carroll's testimony, to which Trump responded, quote, I would love it. This was after the judge had already warned Trump to speak more quietly when talking with his lawyers. During Ms. Carroll's testimony, Carroll told the court today that Trump, quote, shattered her reputation by publicly denying he sexually abused her and attacking her. She said she has gotten death threats and had to hire private security because of his comments. Last year, a jury found that Trump did sexually abuse Carroll in a department store dressing room in 1996 and that he defamed her while publicly denying her claims and viciously attacking her credibility. Carroll's asking now for more than $10 million in damages in addition to the $5 million the court previously awarded her. Donald Trump is expected to make remarks after court ends today, part of his continued strategy of trying to turn the myriad courtrooms into the campaign trail. The former president was in Iowa Monday night for the Iowa caucuses, which he won with more than 50% of Republican support. He then flew to New York and sat in the same New York courtroom yesterday as part of this case before going to an event in New Hampshire last night, New Hampshire being the next state to vote in the Republican primary for president. That'll take place Tuesday. Trump then flew back to New York and returned to his home at Trump Tower before returning to the Manhattan courtroom today. Tonight, back on the plane, expected to head back to New Hampshire for an event in the city of Portsmouth. CNN's Paula Reed is in New York where we're hearing Trump is set to speak after court ramps today. And Paula, it's not only Trump being combative with the judge, right? It's also Trump's lawyers. Uh, that's right, Jake. This is a lot of contrived courtroom drama on the part of Trump and his attorneys. Look, when you walk into a federal courthouse, if there are rules, not being disruptive while a witness is testifying is something that applies to everyone. It is unclear why Trump does not think he has to abide by this rule. Then when it comes to his lawyers, just a few moments ago, uh, one of his lawyers tried to introduce some evidence that the judge was not aware of, and he had to remind her that this is his courtroom. I mean, that's pretty standard. There's a whole class in law school about evidence and how you introduce it. So it appears that Trump is aware of the rules. Alina Habe also clearly aware of the rules of evidence, but we're seeing this pattern where Trump voluntarily attends legal proceedings that he does not have to be present for, then refuses to follow the rules, spars with a judge, and then throws his hands up and says, look, I'm the victim of an unfair system. Now, Jake, look, Trump and his lawyers and some of his other cases, they are litigating some very legitimate constitutional questions. But what we've seen in the courtroom today, I mean, it just appears to be political theater. And Paula, we should note uh, the day after a jury found Trump sexually abused and defamed Carol last year, Donald Trump did that CNN town hall with Caitlin Collins, uh, where he said, among other things, this. They said he didn't rape her. 
And they did I didn't do anything else either. You know what? Because I have no idea who the hell she is. But Mr. President, I don't know can who I, this woman is. They said, sir, don't do it. This is a fake story, and you don't want to give it credibility. One That's why you, I didn't go. One thing you did do in this. And I swear, and I've never done that. And I swear to I have no idea who the hell. She's a Mr. whack President. job. Carol testified today about how that specific rant by the former president affected her. What, what did she have to say? It was interesting. She said that after that verdict last spring where a jury found Trump sexually abused her, defamed her, and awarded her $5 million, she thought to herself, okay, this is it. It's going to stop now. But less than 24 hours later, he said something very similar attacking her, but this time on television. And she noted how shocked she was that his comments drew laughs, considering he was talking about sexual abuse. And she said this sparked a whole new round of attacks. All right, Paula Reed, stick around. I want to bring in former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams, as well as Ellie Honig, who used to serve as the assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Ellie, let's start with the drama we've seen today. At one point, the judge threatened to throw Trump out of the courtroom for making comments such as it's a witch hunt while Carol was in the midst of testifying. One of Trump's lawyers has also sparred with the judge multiple times today. You've been in front of Judge Kaplan dozens of times. What do you think about him? What do you think about how he's handling this? Well, Jake, for any ordinary litigant to act this way in Judge Kaplan's courtroom or any courtroom is bizarre, outrageous, self-defeating. Of course, this is not your average litigant. The physical distance from where Donald Trump is sitting in that courtroom at the defense table to the jury of nine New Yorkers who are going to decide how much he owes E. Jean Carroll is maybe 20 feet. And anyone who's been in a courtroom knows that while you're in the well of the courtroom, if you're a lawyer or a party, that jury's watching everything you do. They're evaluating everything you do. And so this conduct could come well, come back to really haunt Donald Trump. I will say there's an interesting showdown of personalities here because Judge Kaplan controls his courtroom more tightly than I think any other judge I've been in front of. And thus far, he seems to have a pretty low tolerance for the histrionics from Donald Trump. And it wouldn't surprise me if push comes to shove, if Judge Kaplan outright shuts him down or even perhaps makes good on his promise to have him removed. Elliot, are you surprised by this approach by Trump and by his lawyers? Is, is there an actual strategy here? Uh, well, the strategy is a political one, not a legal one, Jake. And, you know, to back up all the things Ellie said, judges control their fiefdoms. And at one's peril, does one pick on a judge or get under a judge's skin? Uh, and so starting with any number of things, like the fact that the judge does not need to allow the former president to even be in the courtroom, uh, the former president is skating on very thin ice here. And, you know, as a broader point, one must submit to the rules of the court, um, even if you don't like them if you don't if you think it's a witch hunt or whatever else um and so this is an incredibly risky strategy for the former president now again it's probably whipping up his supporters but it is not doing anything to curry favor number one with the jury that's going to have to decide his fate or number two the judges who's making these rulings uh as of the future of the case paula this case already went to trial when a jury found liable for found him liable for defamation and sexual abuse this is the first time however Jean carroll has gotten to speak about her experience with trump in the room Walk us through the significance of that, not just for her, but for, for other victims uh, of sexual assault and rape as well. 
That's right, Jake. She testified in the trial in the spring when the jury found that Trump sexually abused her. But this is the first time she has talked about the impact that this has had on her with Trump sitting just feet away. Like yesterday was the first time the two of them had been in the same room in decades. You know, for any survivors of sexual abuse or sexual assault, it is incredibly daunting to sit in a courtroom and tell your story. And it becomes even more so if your alleged attacker is, is right there. Now, it appears that she was very well prepared for this. Uh, she came out swinging, calling him a liar, calling out what she said were his lies over the past several days, months, and years. And it was likely that she was also prepared for him to react the way he did, both verbally and physically. Let's turn to another uh, Trump case, uh, Ellie, if we could, because today a judge in Maine deferred a decision on whether Trump can be on Maine's ballot. This is based on the 14th Amendment and uh, banning insurrectionists from running for higher office. Uh, the judge told state election officials they have to wait for the U.S. Supreme Court to rule on the similar case in Colorado early next month. How big of a decision is this? Well, it's a, it's a big decision, Jake, and I also think it's a fair and reasonable decision, and here's why. This case that's going up to the U.S. Supreme Court relating to Colorado's decision to disqualify Donald Trump under the 14th Amendment Insurrection Clause, that case is being argued in the Supreme Court a few weeks from today on February 8th, and it's fairly certain we'll get a decision from the Supreme Court within a couple weeks of that. Super Tuesday, March 5th, is when both Colorado and Maine vote. And I think the wisdom of this Maine decision is, let's see what the Supreme Court says, because there's one of two things that could happen. If the Supreme Court strikes down what Colorado did and says, not up to the states, sorry, this is up to the U.S. Congress, or the 14th Amendment does not apply to the president, game over, Maine's out of business, this, all these 14th Amendment challenges across the United States, they all fail. On the other hand, it may be that the Supreme Court says, Colorado, you're fine what you did, and other states, you can do the same, you have to follow certain procedures, then Maine can go ahead with their attempt to disqualify Donald Trump, and they'll have more guidance from the court. I think ultimately these 14th Amendment challenges are doomed in the U.S. Supreme Court, but smart to wait and see. And moreover, just to, to add to that, uh, look, going back to the original decision from the Maine Secretary of State, at the time that that decision and so, understanding the disconnect here, at the time that decision was made, number one, the Supreme Court hadn't even been brought into this. And number two, I think the Colorado Supreme Court hadn't even ruled yet. If not, they had just ruled. It made sense for the Secretary of State to issue the ruling when she did, but it absolutely makes sense for the main Supreme Court or the main trial court here to hold off, wait and see what the U.S. Supreme Court does. So everybody sort of did the right thing along the way, regardless of what the outcomes of the decisions were. Paula, what else is coming up on Trump's legal calendar? Well, tomorrow we're waiting for their Supreme Court brief about that ballot eligibility question that they were just talking about. They're going to lay out their entire argument in that brief. We're also waiting for the Court of Appeals to weigh in on this larger question of immunity because the decision that they make there would have an impact on what we expected was going to be the first federal trial Trump would face, the election subversion case. Now, two other things we're also watching. One, we're looking for the decision in that civil case. Remember Trump's business here in the state of New York yeah. facing possibly hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties and the possibility of never being able to do business in the state again. But also watching down in Georgia, accusations about Fonnie Willis and a potentially improper relationship that she had with the lawyer she appointed to oversee the sprawling RICO case against Trump and other defendants, raising a lot of questions uh, about her judgment. She is expected to reply to that in the coming weeks, but that's also something to watch. And Ellie, we expect to hear Trump speak after court wraps up today. He's going to go before the cameras, talk about the procedure and probably a bunch of other things. Uh, Mr. Trump's also been posting on Truth Social, his social media site, not just about this case, but about 
other legal cases he's facing, these comments can be used against him, right? When he goes to trial in those cases, public statements, whether uh, before the cameras or on Truth Social. Yes, all of these statements, anything that any defendant in any criminal case says publicly, whether in front of a camera, on True Social, elsewhere, it is all usable, admissible against him. And by the way, Donald Trump is already seeing his own words used against him in this E. Jean Carroll trial as he continues to post about her, post negative things, that is going in front of the jury. And the jury can absolutely consider that specifically on the question of punitive damages. Are they going to sort of add on to the damages award to send a message to him? And Jake, all of this is admissible if it becomes relevant in any of those criminal cases, in any of the civil cases. So he speaks at his own risk, but he will most assuredly continue to speak. Elliot? Uh, no, absolutely. And this is why defense attorneys overwhelmingly direct their clients not to speak. Now, look, we all know very well that the former president of the United States, one of the most famous people on the planet and known for bluster or puffery, whatever you wish to say, has a practice or, or a habit of speaking out publicly. But any word that a, a defendant says, number one, can be used to impeach him, can be used as evidence against him, uh, or, and frankly, can be used to hold him in contempt of court, depending on the nature of the statement that is made. Defense attorneys almost never want their clients to give press conferences, comments publicly. And this, as Ellie said, is going to come back and bite the former president. But sort of getting back to what I talked about a little bit earlier, you have to submit to the rules of the court. Even if you're a former president and don't like it, you can be held in contempt of court and you can lose a trial and lose millions of dollars if the things you say get you in trouble. All right. Thanks to all three of you. Appreciate it. We want to go next to that meeting President Biden's convened at the White House uh, with top congressional leaders. The new signals today that some Republicans, at least, might be able to w work with him uh, on a border deal of some sort. This just announced today, a new CNN town hall with Ambassador Nikki Haley will be tomorrow. She's going to take questions from voters in New Hampshire ahead of next week's primary. I'm going to fly up to New Hampshire and moderate that discussion tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN and streaming on Max. We'll be right back. You're looking at images today from Russia's continued war on the people of Ukraine, continuing to unleash death and destruction on civilians. This, as President Biden is currently hosting bipartisan congressional leaders at the White House right now in an urgent effort to press them for more Ukraine aid ahead of Friday's deadline to fund the U.S. government. In addition to Ukraine, negotiations also include sending U.S. aid to Taiwan, Israel, and the U.S. southern border, along with major changes to border and immigration policies. That latter being one, an, an issue that Democrats have shown some willingness to compromise with Republicans, which some Senate Republicans note is a compromise House Republicans should not ignore. CNN's MJ Lee is at the White House and Manu Raj is on Capitol Hill. MJ, do you first, some lawmakers say the White House waited too long to get House Speaker Mike Johnson involved in the negotiation talks. Does the White House believe they have any leverage in this fight or are they willing to bend even further uh, for Republicans? Yeah, uh, Jake, there's quite a bit of finger pointing going on right now, including the White House uh, blaming the House for breaking for the holidays before a deal could be struck. But obviously, the fact that President Biden has invited these congressional leaders to physically come to the White House shows uh, sort of the urgency that the White House is trying to inject uh, into this national security supplemental package. Uh, what is interesting to me uh, just over the last two days is the White House's insistence that this meeting is 
is going to be largely focused on Ukraine. Uh, the, President Biden and his national security team, uh, they are in this meeting right now with members of Congress. Uh, they're going to lay out for these members sort of the battlefield ramifications for not getting additional U.S. aid, including potential setbacks uh, in the war if they are not to get uh, this additional security package cleared. Uh, you know, the administration, of course, as you know, has been warning that the last presidential drawdown authority uh, was uh, used at the end of last year and that there is no more money. So they're going to use, in part, classified information as well in this briefing that's going on right now to try to sway lawmakers. The problem, of course, for the White House here is that House Speaker Johnson has made clear he's not really interested in talking about Ukraine until uh, he has sorted out the border situation. Now, I think White House and uh, the White House and Democrats would say that they have made uh, plenty of concessions on this issue. They say uh, that on that front, things are moving in the right direction. We'll just have to see when this meeting wraps whether we get the sense that things will move uh, more in the right direction. That's according to the White House uh, after the president himself has met face to face with these members of Congress, Jake. Um, and Manu, I have to say, this is really the furthest I've ever seen Democrats meet Republicans on what Republicans want to see in a, in a border deal. Um, whether or not it's, an, it's enough for House Republicans, I don't know, but it is more conservative than previous legislation I've seen on the border issue. Are Republicans, enough Republicans at least, going to be willing to jump on this opportunity, uh, or are they trying to wring out more concessions still, or is it really just H.R. 2, the conservative House Republican bill, or nothing? Well, Jake, there are a lot of calls from top Senate Republicans telling House Republicans that that plan, H.R. 2, the Republican plan that passed the House last year, has no chance of passing the Democratic-led Senate and that they need to compromise. And there is an embrace among top Republicans of these ongoing negotiations in the Senate saying this is essentially the best deal that they could get. New border restrictions, changes to asylum laws and, and the like, even though this deal is not yet finalized yet. There are calls from Senator John Cornyn, one of the top Republicans, telling me that they should accept half a loaf. It's better than no loaf at all. And they can't wait until next year. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, too, expressing increased optimism that a deal could be reached and it could be on the floor of the Senate by next week. And I asked Speaker, Speaker uh, Senator McConnell about Speaker Johnson's resistance to these Senate negotiations and Johnson's calls to pass the House plan. And McConnell made clear that the Senate was moving on its own track why it seems that you and Speaker Johnson are not on the same page about the border talks. He's been throwing cold water on these efforts to move off of HR2. Are you concerned about that? Well, it's not unusual for the House or Senate to be in a different place on lots of issues. Uh, the way this needs to go forward is for this one of the bodies to pass something that will actually get a signature. But the question is whether or not Speaker Johnson would agree to any bipartisan deal that comes out of the Senate, given that it almost certainly will not go as far as what many House Republicans want. So that is one of the major questions here. Mitch McConnell has been a staunch advocate of getting aid to Ukraine. He is urging his colleagues to accept any deal that is cut between a trio of senators, James Langford, Kirsten Sinema, and Chris Murphy, who are continuing to meet with the administration to try to get a deal on border policy that could unlock aid to Ukraine, unlock to Israel as well as to Taiwan, but getting that through the Senate will be a big test and a bigger test in the House as they try to get it through in this campaign season where immigration is the number one issue for Republicans and many Republicans simply don't want to compromise on that key issue ahead of the fall.
It also seems a lot of them don't want to give Biden any sort of uh, win. Uh, is something that they've some, some of them have said out loud. Uh, MJ Lee at the White House, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thank you so thank you both. Uh, let's go to Ukraine now, where at least 20 people in Kharkiv and Odessa were injured uh, in overnight Russian attacks. Ukraine says that Russia launched a combination of Russian missiles and at least 20 drones, courtesy of Iran, as Russian leader Putin continues to threaten Ukraine's very existence, warning its statehood, quote, will soon be questioned, to which a top Ukrainian official responded, saying Russia's only aim is, quote, conquest, annihilation, destruction and murder. CNN's Fred Plykin reports from the bitterly cold battlefield as Ukraine's future hangs in the balance. The battle is already in full swing when the artillery unit gets their orders. Their battle cat Sioma follows the commander to the U.S. provided M777 gun and they get to work. So the soldiers have now been given a target and they're working as fast as possible to try and fire as many rounds as accurately towards the Russian positions. Three rounds, that's it. The commander tells me ammo shortages are a real problem here. There is more of a deficit, he says. When we were in Zaporizhia direction, we used 50 to 60 shells a day. Now it's 20 to 30 maximum. The resupply truck only brings a few more rounds. And with U.S. military aid ground to a halt, things could get even tougher for the Ukrainians soon. We're near Marinka on the eastern front. The Russians recently managed to take Marinka after essentially annihilating the entire town with their artillery. Moscow's forces face no ammo shortages, the Ukrainians say, after getting around a million artillery rounds from North Korea in the past year. Even as we prepare to leave, the position is under Russian fire. We drive away, constantly watching for Russian drones and possible artillery impacts. Different day, different front line, similar problems for Ukraine's forces, major shortages. We're in the battle zone near Avdivka with a special forces unit called Omega. It's 22 degrees below freezing. They want to fire artillery rockets at the Russians, but lacking Western arms, they've mounted a Soviet-era launcher on a U.S.-made pickup truck. They set up fast, but then this. Yeah. So one of the issues that the Ukrainians have using this very old technology is that sometimes it simply doesn't work. It's very cold right now. They think something's frozen and it's just not working. All they can do is de-rig and leave before the Russians see them. We wanted to strike at the enemy's positions, but unfortunately, sometimes it happens. The equipment does not work, he says. Technology does not stand still, and as we can see in this war, the technologies from the West are giving very good results. The unit later did manage to fire three rockets after troubleshooting for several hours. Delays that can be costly in a war where Ukraine is already badly outgunned. So as you can see there, Jake, shortages of ammunition, shortages also of modern weapons as well. But one of the things that we did notice is that morale among the Ukrainians is actually still very high. They do say that they're stopping most of those Russian uh, assaults, but they also say that it's becoming more difficult as those ammo shortages become more pronounced. Of course, they also say that that, in effect, is going to lead to more casualties on the Ukrainian side. Jake? All right, Fred Plekin in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Next to the dire scenes about 2,000 miles south of Ukraine in Gaza right now, the longest stretch yet 
of an internet blackout making communication nearly impossible and what a journalist managed to share about strikes near a major hospital. That's next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And back with our world lead today, medicine will depart Qatar en route to hostages in Gaza, Israeli hostages, and six Americans. But the deal brokered by Qatar is dependent on medication getting to Palestinians in Gaza. And Hamas's stipulation means for every one box of medicine delivered to the Israeli hostages, 1,000 boxes must be provided for people in Gaza. This is the Israel Defense Forces continue to bombard the Gaza Strip, including a cemetery in southern Gaza. Video geolocated by CNN shows severe damage and graves apparently disturbed. CNN's Nada Bashir reports for us now on the sheer desperation inside densely populated Gaza as Israel goes after Hamas. Uh, now in its fifth day of a, a near total internet blackout, we must warn some, some viewers, uh, some of the images you're about to see are disturbing. Relentless strikes piercing the night sky over Khan Yunus. Gaza, once again, plunged into eerie darkness. Endless tragedies on the ground, obscured by the longest communications blackout imposed on the Strip thus far. What little video is still able to reach the world paints a troubling picture. At the Al Nasr Hospital in Gaza's south, not only one of the last still functioning here, but also where the World Health Organization says some 7,000 people were sheltering. Families, yet again, have been forced to flee. Civilians and patients seen here carrying their children and belongings. As Israeli forces, who said they were targeting a Hamas rocket launched against the IDF from the hospital complex, close in. There is heavy fire at the Al Nasser hospital and in the vicinity. We're seeing huge violent bombings here. We've been trying to share video of what is happening from the highest point at the hospital. But as you can see, the bombardment is severe. Israel maintains it is targeting Hamas infrastructure and tunnels where hostages are said to have been held, which Hamas denies. As the sun rises in Gaza, the death toll also climbs. Families carrying the bodies of those who did not survive the night. My life, my life, this mother cries over her child. Tiny bodies wrapped in shrouds, carried in the arms of bereft parents. Now amongst the more than 10,000 children said to have been killed in a war they had no part in. Those figures, provided by the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza, grow more shocking with each passing day. More than 24,000 people killed in just over three months. 
Israel says that some 9,000 Hamas fighters were among the dead, though CNN is unable to independently verify this claim. These were peaceful people. They were sleeping in their homes. The Israelis told us to go to the south, so we came. But there's no safe place in Gaza. Not in the south, not in the north, not in the middle. Every area is being struck. Everywhere is dangerous. The vast majority of Gaza's 2.3 million population are now internally displaced, concentrated in the south, where Israel's bombardment is only intensifying. The unfolding catastrophe in Gaza, now characterized by the UN's humanitarian office as a stain on the world's collective conscience. A war, they say, conducted with almost no regard for the impact on civilian life. And now, with little aid getting into the strip, a war that is pushing Gaza past the brink of famine. And look, Jake, as we continue to see the humanitarian situation deteriorate, we are still hearing those warnings from UN agencies. Some 15 out of 36 hospitals in Gaza are said to be the only ones left operational. Those are the only ones operational, but only partially operational, according to the World Health Organization. There is, of course, still a dire need for aid to get into the Gaza Strip and, of course, medical supplies as well. That deal coordinated by Qatar is set to see uh, medication being provided to, to those uh, held hostage in Gaza. But, of course, crucially, we'll also see... Uh, some aid and some medication coming in for Palestinians in Gaza. The question of whether this will be enough remains to be seen. And of course, there are questions around what is next, whether that agreement, whether that deal will be perhaps the foundations for further agreements between Israel and Hamas. That is certainly the hope uh, for many, particularly the UN, which continues to call for a sustained humanitarian ceasefire. Nada, we should know you're in Lebanon and the UN is also stressing how crucial it is uh, for the avoidance to avoid an all-out war and military confrontation there. What, what are you hearing from officials there? Well, absolutely. We continue to see that crossfire along Lebanon's southern border between Israel, the Israeli military and Hezbollah. There are mounting concerns around the potential for that crossfire to escalate into a deeper uh, conflict between Lebanon and Israel. We heard today from Israel's chief of general staff warning that the likelihood of war between Israel and Hezbollah uh, has increased in comparison to previous months, that Israel is at a point of increased readiness. Those comments were made during a visit to reservists stationed uh, along Israel's northern border. That has been a point of concern for some time now, of course. We've heard uh, just in the last week from Hezbollah's uh, Secretary General, Hassan Nasrallah, he has uh, directly connected the situation along that border with the situation in Gaza, saying that there can be no discussion around a potential cessation of violence between Hezbollah and Israel without a ceasefire in Gaza first. Jake? All right, CNN's Nana Bashir in Lebanon. Thanks for that report coming up. Here, part of the 911 calls on New Year's Day asking for an ambulance to be sent immediately to the home of Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, along with efforts to not draw attention to the emergency response. Stay with us. New audio of a 911 call, the latest detail in the efforts to keep the health status of the U.S. Secretary of Defense secret. In a critical moment with multiple wars raging around the world, Oren Lieberman reports on how this latest wrinkle adds to growing questions centered around personal privacy as well as the public's right to know who is supervising the largest military and arsenal in the world. 
Fairfax County 911, where is your emergency? Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization was a secret from the start. At 7.11 p.m. on New Year's Day, an aide to Austin called 911. My name is... And I work for... In a recording of the call obtained by CNN, the aide's name is redacted, so is Austin's. But the street matches the address of the defense secretary's home. The aide asks the 911 dispatcher for the ambulance to remain silent, a request any caller can make. Can I ask, but can the ambulance not show up with lights and sirens? Um, we're trying to... Mm -hmm. remain a, a little subtle. The dispatcher acknowledges the request but says the ambulance cannot fully comply. Yeah, I understand. Um, yeah, usually when they turn into a residential neighborhood, they'll turn them off, uh, but they're required by law to run with them with the main street. On Wednesday, the Pentagon wouldn't say why Austin's aide uh, wanted the aware, ambulance secretary, to be Austin subtle. We're reviewing this. Uh, the secretary has, again, taken responsibility in terms of the need for transparency as it relates to his medical care. Austin was taken to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center with complications from a surgery to treat prostate cancer on December 22nd, a diagnosis that wasn't immediately disclosed to President Joe Biden or other senior national security officials. Is he reporting any chest pain at all? No. Okay. Did he pass out or does he feel like he's going to pass out? Uh, no. Okay. And like you said, he's, he's awake, he's alert and oriented, he's not confused or anything like that, correct? Correct. One day later, Austin was admitted to the intensive care unit. It would be another 48 hours before the president knew Austin was in the hospital. And one more day after that, until Congress and the public were notified. But Austin's initial diagnosis with prostate cancer, which occurred in early December, wasn't known until January 9th. Do you have a this Secretary Austin? I do. I'm sorry. Was it a lapse in judgment for him not to tell you earlier? Yes. Austin spent two weeks at Walter Reed Medical Center at a critical time for U.S. national security. The war in Gaza raged into its fourth month. Iranian proxies attacked international shipping in the Red Sea and launched more attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. And the U.S. carried out strikes against the Houthis in Yemen, which Austin authorized from the hospital. Now, there are two reviews ongoing into the lack of notification, the lack of transparency here, one from the Office of the Secretary of Defense and one from the DOD Inspector General. Meanwhile, at this point, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is doing his work from home where the Pentagon says he has the capabilities uh, and the ability to access secure communications as needed by his job. At this point, Jake, no word on when we'll see him back in the Pentagon full time. Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Coming up, something so jarring to report. Just how often anonymous tips come in from students that help prevent tragedy at schools. In our national lead today, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland is in Uvalde, Texas, right now, touring murals of the 21 victims, 19 students and two teachers, who were slaughtered by that lone gold gunman at Robb Elementary School in May 2023. Garland will meet with the victims' families later today. His visit comes a day ahead of the U.S. Department of Justice's report on the botched police response to the Uvalde School Massacre. The long-anticipated review comes more than a year and a half after the mass shooting at Robb Elementary, the deadliest U.S. school shooting in almost a decade. Even though there were numerous 911 calls made inside the classrooms, as this deadly rampage was happening, the nearly 400 responding officers waited outside those rooms for more than an hour, 77 minutes, to intervene and to ultimately take out the shooter. To this day, there really has not been any serious accountability or even explanation for such a delayed response. Instead, there's been silence or contradictions from law enforcement, public officials, and school administrators. 
leaving grieving families haunted by the idea that their loved ones left trapped in those classrooms could have been saved that day. Ending school shootings feels like such a daunting task given the degree and amount of gun violence in the United States and the unwillingness of so many officials to do anything about it. But there does appear to be some kind of hope. A new study published by the medical journal Pediatrics shows that anonymous tips work in preventing school shootings and suicides. Let's bring in CNN security correspondent Josh Campbell. Josh, tell us about the results of the study in, uh, published in Pediatrics. Yeah, Jake, well, this endless wave of mass shootings that you and I have continued to cover has been met by researchers stepping up efforts to look at ways of preventing such shootings. And one of those that has proven to be very effective, according to this new study, pertains to these anonymous reporting platforms that are available to school children. Researchers in particular looked at uh, the platform See Something Anonymous Reporting System. That's run by the violence prevention group Sandy Hook Promise. And what they found uh, was that this was very effective in one state looking at a few years of data. I'll show you uh, some of those results. They uh, determined that this system allowed for over a thousand mental health interventions, over a hundred prevented suicides and six averted school shootings. That's because a student called into this tip line or reported it online saying that they saw something concerning. They wanted counselors or responders to take a look. You could see the impact of their work. And when we're talking about kids, obviously anonymity is key because in so many of these instances, they might be talking about their own best friend who might be uh, talking about harming themselves or harming others. In fact, law enforcement who has studied this issue, including the U.S. Secret Service, they have found, I'll read you part of uh, one of their recent reports, anonymous and confidential reporting options can broaden the appeal of reporting, especially for students who are concerned about being identified and ostracized by their peers after reporting. Research finds that the fear of being ostracized or experiencing other forms of retaliation is a significant barrier to reporting. So again, as you mentioned, it seems so daunting covering these shootings, but at least one possible glimmer of hope here, the kids themselves uh, picking up the phone or, or going to these apps, going online to report concerning behaviors to help save lives, Jake. Are there any efforts to make this preventative measure mandatory in schools? There are, and they're in fact bipartisan. We know that when you t we talk about gun violence prevention, often that can be politically polarizing. Uh, but in this instance, when we're talking about anonymous platforms, we've seen both Republicans and Democrats come out and say that they want to see action. I spoke with one uh, legislator in Michigan uh, who said that this was after that Oxford High School shooting. He said that they formed a task force, and one of the key uh, findings was they want to provide more resources to that state's online uh, platform that they use to report tips. So again, very important. Finally, Jake, if you're an educator out there or if you're a parent wondering how I can find out more information, visit our story, CNN.com slash health. You will find a wealth of resources in order to help educate kids about the ways that they can report concerning behavior, Jake. And it's worth re reminding our viewers that for about 25 years, the Congress banned the Center for Disease Control and Prevention yeah. from using federal funds to study the issue of gun, gun violence because of an amendment called the Dickey Amendment from a Republican congressman in Arkansas that thankfully is no longer the case. But just imagine that banning the study of gun violence. Josh Campbell, thanks so much. And if you or anyone you love needs help, please call the Crisis Lifeline by calling or texting 988. There is help for you. There is love for you. 988. Coming up next, the apology today from the White House Chief of Staff after a rather flippant comment about a Republican presidential candidate in Monday's Iowa caucuses from the Democratic National Committee. Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. 
So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour showdown at the border again. It's the Biden administration versus the state of Texas in a dispute over two and a half miles of land this time. Texas has this part of the, their own state blocked off with fencing and razor wire and even its own Texas National Guard. The feds want more access and the feds are threatening action that could play out any moment. Plus, a change in tune. North Carolina's second highest ranking elected official and a possible candidate for governor used to be all in on being against abortion. Now he won't even use the word abortion. Why not? Well, see what CNN's K-File team found when going through his public statements. And leading this hour, only six days away from the next contest in the 2024 race, the New Hampshire Republican primary, three major candidates remain. Governor Ron DeSantis is wrapping up a day of events in the Granite State. Nikki Haley will hold a rally there tonight ahead of her new CNN presidential town hall in New Hampshire tomorrow night. And Donald Trump is also expected to head to New Hampshire after spending the day in court in New York. Let's bring in former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson for his very first TV interview since he ended or suspended his 2024 campaign for president. He finished sixth in the Iowa Republican caucuses. Governor, um, I want to start with the fact that the Democratic National Committee uh, put out a rather snarky statement about you suspending your campaign, saying this news comes as a shock to those of us who could have sworn he had already dropped out. Uh, A number of Democrats actually objected to this, pointing out that you had actually been out there telling the truth about Donald Trump and standing up for democracy. And I understand that President Biden's chief of staff, Jeff Zients, called you today to apologize. Well, that's correct. And of course, uh, I didn't pay much attention to what the DNC said, but it's actually gratifying to see a bipartisan uh, rebuffing of Uh, of this uh, snarky uh, tweet, as you say, or comment. And to me, it just doesn't reflect the uh, best of America whenever you have uh, ridicule or sarcasm that is leading the path. And so I'm grateful for Jeff uh, reaching out to me today. It took his time away and he apologized and it meant a lot to me. And to me, that reflects uh, the good parts of American politics. You fight hard. Uh, but then at the end of the day, uh, you want to make sure you treat each other with respect. So I appreciated the call. You were the only major candidate left in the race after Chris Christie dropped out, who was staunchly critical of former President Trump. Your candidacy is frankly a throwback to uh, an early year, earlier year of the Republican Party. It did not ultimately gain traction with Iowa Republicans. Donald Trump won 51 percent of the caucus vote. It's groundbreaking and that's never happened before. Has Trump changed the Republican Party forever? Well, I hope not. Uh, Certainly, he's redefined uh, the Republican Party, both in terms of policy and also in his image. And actually, that's uh, one thing that uh, I observed during the course of this campaign is the stranglehold that Donald Trump has on the apparatus of the Republican Party, both at the national but also uh, in many of the states and move it, having some of them move to caucuses. So, uh, and then now you see uh, many of the Republican 
members of Congress and senators falling in line. So there's a brave few that say, no, that's not the right direction for us. And in Iowa, that message didn't work. And I think what happened toward the end, you saw a movement uh, back toward uh, Nikki Haley as she was the most logical uh, alternative to Donald Trump. And so uh, I think that's one of the reasons that we uh, came out of there poorly uh, and, of course, necessitated uh, my suspension of the campaign. But hats off to those that won and are continuing to campaign in New Hampshire. So just to talk about the Republican electorate for a second, CNN entrance polls show that a vast majority of Iowa Republican voters believe the lie that Biden lost the 2020 election. Um, they be- it's not true. I mean, it'd be like if uh, this was not polled for, but it'd be like if two thirds of the electorate said Obama was born in Africa or the moon is made of green cheese. I mean, it's just not true. Um, a vast majority also say if Trump is convicted of a crime, uh, he, it's, that's fine. He's not unfit for the presidency. Republican Senator Mitt Romney said today that this shows many voters are, quote, out of touch with reality. Do you agree? Well, uh, that's why I ran into a a brick wall in Iowa that uh, I spoke very clearly that uh, I don't believe uh, January 6th was a patriotic act. Uh, I don't believe, uh, uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, disavowing uh, the attack on the Capitol is realistic and he's misleading his supporters. And yet you see people believing that. And so I give them the hard truth. And that uh, uh, is not something that uh, wins votes sometimes. But it is important in terms of the party and winning in 2024. So uh, I think they uh, really are not now recognizing the risk for the Republican Party and our chance of winning. I don't believe that that necessarily will be the case in New Hampshire. I think New Hampshire is going to be a look, different look and more difficult. Uh, but this is a challenge, and uh, uh, it's a battle that's worth uh, continuing to fight on because it reflects uh, the direction of the Republican Party in the future. Are you ready to endorse a candidate, either Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis? Do you think one of them is better suited to take on Donald Trump? Uh, I have not uh, made a decision on any endorsement. Uh, I think it's going to be a a good battle there in New Hampshire. And so let's see how that plays out. Uh, There might be a role for me to play down the road. But at this point, I'm not uh, making any endorsements. And uh, uh, but I'm really uh, pulling for someone to be the nominee other than Donald Trump, because that's critical for uh, the future direction of my life. But also, most importantly, Uh, It'd be good for America and the Republican Party. If it comes down to Biden versus Trump in the fall, who will you vote for? Well, I'm counting on that not being the case. And you think about it, uh, that's the race that no one wants. And it doesn't reflect well on the two political parties if that's what we give America uh, exactly what they do not want. And so uh, I will be working that there is an alternative voice that's out there. Uh, It's not going to be me and the Republican uh, primary, but there's others that are out there and we're pulling for them. And I do believe that this d- dynamics will change next year as more facts come out, a greater realization of the risk to their party through the convention and beyond uh, if we want to win in 2024. So, Jake, it's going to change. It's going to change. And uh, I think I'll be able to support the Republican nominee when it's all said and done. Okay. 
Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. Let's bring in our panel. Uh, uh, Kate, uh, what, do you make of, uh, what do you make of his optimism that Donald Trump's not going to be the nominee? Well, I, you know, I wish there were more people like Asa Hutchinson in the Republican Party who were willing to call Trump out on his lies. I uh, wish I shared his optimism that Donald Trump was not going to be the nominee. I don't really see a path to that. You would, this, rather, you would rather have, so you would rather have Nikki Haley be the nominee even if she poses a bigger threat to Biden? Personally, I would. And the reason for that is that I think that Donald Trump is a uniquely existential threat to the country. Now, we could talk about what a Biden-Haley matchup looks like. I actually think Joe Biden would ultimately defeat Nikki Haley because I think her position on abortion uh, and many other issues would not be palatable in a general election. I think once she got into a general election, uh, she wouldn't look as strong as she you know, maybe but looks still, right now would, with you, moderate voters. But, but you would rather have a more normie Republican on the top of the ticket, even if that increased the likelihood that Biden lost? I personally, yes, I would. I would. Because I think Donald Trump is that big a threat to to democracy. I think he has co-opted the base of the Republican Party in a way that is incredibly dangerous. Uh, look, in the end, I obviously think that Joe Biden is going to best any Republican uh, in a general election matchup. But if, if you're if you're asking me personally, as somebody who cares about democracy, as somebody who's obviously a partisan Democrat, obviously somebody yeah. who loves Joe Biden and wants to see Joe Biden have a second term. I would still rather see Donald Trump off the, the playing field because I think he's that dangerous. Dangerous to the country, not yeah. dangerous to yeah. Biden. Yes, exactly. Um, and Kristen, former President Trump in a social media post referred to Nikki Haley by her birth first name, uh, Nimarada. He, he misspelled it, but I don't think that's really even the point. Um, she is obviously the daughter of Indian immigrants to the United States. Surprise, surprise. Um, Nikki Haley said yesterday, this is not a racist country, and I guess we could all debate whether or not it ever was or is or et cetera, but that just seems to be blatant race baiting uh, by Donald Trump. Hey, remember, her? she's not really Nikki. She's Nimarada. From the guy that brought you conspiracy theories about Barack Obama's oh, yeah. birth certificate? I mean, yeah. it, in some ways, it's almost surprising that it just took this long for Donald Trump to get there. Um, maybe it's because he didn't see, see Nikki Haley as a big threat until now, and now he kind of does. But it's gross. It's terrible. It's why Republicans ought to nominate someone else and why it's such a shame that it seems like they are unlikely to do so. He also posted this on um, social media. It's, a, it's an image of uh, Nikki Haley as uh, Hillary Clinton with uh, Hillary H. as the Haley, I guess those wondering if she's going to be tapped to be his vice president well, in the Haley campaign uh, should put those. Uh, yeah, that's unsettling. That's an unsettling use it's not a nice of image. generative AI. Uh, <laughs> however, that I would say is an attack that while Nikki Haley would push back vehemently and say, no, that's not fair. That's actually not. No, no, that's within bounds. But it's, I, just it's within bounds. Yes, it's not an attractive <laughs> image, but it's, it's within bounds of politics. Certainly. But uh, all I'm saying is for anyone who thinks that Nikki Haley is holding back because she wants the VP nod or would be willing to ultimately take it, that's certainly an argument Chris Christie was making. Yeah. I think that makes the point that she's not going to get it, no? Well, I, I push back a little bit. First okay. of all, I don't think she's holding back because she wants to be VP. I think she is continuing to try to thread a needle where she wants to be the alternative in a party that still very much right. likes Donald Trump. Absolutely. But I also think, secondarily, there are a lot of people that Donald Trump has said terrible things about who wind up ending up on sides with him. Just take a look at Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, who I believe within the last 48 hours has come out and endorsed Donald Trump. 
pretty sure he had some pretty nasty social media posts about Ted yeah. Cruz. In fact, let's well. cue the 20 minute montage <laughs> of things that Cruz and Trump have said about each other. I'm just joking. I'm not going to do that. But you could do that. You I mean, stuff. I mean, literally, Donald Trump went after Ted Cruz's wife. Literally, he went after Ted Cruz's father, insinuating yes. he had something to do with the JFK assassination. Uh, and by the way, those posts are still up. He yeah. never, he never yeah. took him down. Yeah. Uh, Ted Cruz uh, yesterday proud to endorse Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, this is the ugly underbelly of Republican politics right now. I mean, it's, you know, to, to quote Joe Biden, who often says you have to know what you're willing to lose over. And, you know, for Ted Cruz, apparently having Donald Trump insult his father, his wife, uh, apparently that's not worth losing over. So at the end of the day, this is a it's a political calculation, pure and simple. It's not a flattering one for Ted Cruz or anybody who is taking the brunt of these very personal attacks from Donald Trump and then turning around and saying, this is a guy I think should be in the Well, White House. maybe he's just trying to in, improve the average of when his endorsement came, because remember, he didn't endorse Trump <laughs> at the Republican convention. <laughs> so ultimately, that, could, that endorsement came late. Now he's doing it early. It averages yeah, exactly. like at a normal time. Uh, Nikki Haley uh, not doing a, a debate. I think ABC News had a debate that was supposed to take place tomorrow night uh, with uh, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, obviously, never shows up for debates. But do you think that was a mistake by Nikki Haley? Probably not, if, if only insofar as the debate that you moderated. I didn't feel like she or even Ron DeSantis really came away from it having gained anything. They have already emptied their full cannons of this is all the bad stuff I have to say about my opponent. Um, they've been asked a lot of questions already about their records. I, I always like opportunities for candidates to be heard by voters. But in this case, strategically, I feel like they've said a lot of what they needed to say on stage with one another. If Trump or Biden's not going to be there, I get the calculation. Well, and after ABC canceled the debate, we announced we're doing a town hall, so she'll still get a chance to be heard yes. from by, by voters. Uh, voters. Uh, Kate, the, the pro-DeSantis Super PAC never backed down, is laying off staff, uh, including for its Super Tuesday operation. Uh, his team, uh, with no small sense of irony, they need Trump to win New Hampshire, right? Because Nikki Haley wins... Then all of a sudden, it's a two. You can make the argument it's a two-person race. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Although I will say I'm not sure there's really an outcome uh, that uh, looks good for Ron DeSantis moving forward. I'm not. Sh I I'm not really sure how I he. Got to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Donald Trump speaking right now after spending the day in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case against him. Let's uh, take a listen to what he had to say about the court today. Well, thank you very much. So, uh, as you know, uh, the first lady's mother passed away. The funeral is tomorrow, and we would have assumed that for a trial like this, it's not an emergency in terms of timing. Uh, the judge would have been very nice and would have let me go because I want to be at every trial day uh, because I saw what happened in the first one where I was asked not to go by the lawyers very much. They said, it, it's demeaning. There was no evidence. There was no anything. And so I didn't go, and I understood exactly what he meant when he said it was demeaning. There was no reason to go, and you shouldn't go. And I decided on this one, same judge, same judge. He's a radical Trump hater. And uh, I said, uh, I will go to all days. So what happened very terribly is we asked to just delay the trial for one day so I could go to the funeral tomorrow and then we could start Friday or Monday or any time they want. And he said, absolutely not. The trial will go on just as it is. You can go to the funeral or you can go to the trial, but you can't do both. I thought it was terrible. I thought it was terrible. So he would rather have me miss the funeral or go to the funeral, miss the trial. And that's a nasty man. He's a nasty judge. He's a Trump-hating guy. 
And uh, it's obvious to everybody in the court. It's a disgrace, frankly, what's happening. It's a disgrace. Happens to be a Clinton appointment, but I'm sure that has nothing to do with it. So that's as to that. Second order of business, I'm leaving right now for New Hampshire. We're making a big speech up in New Hampshire. We just got a poll in that shows me leading by a lot. And I think we'll do there, maybe similar to what we did in Iowa. Uh, The difference is that in New Hampshire, they allow Democrats to vote for whatever reason in the Republican primary. And they also let uh, independents vote in the Republican primary. So that is a big difference. But we have uh, a nice journey. It's going to take place in about five minutes when I'm finished with you people. I'll be leaving for New Hampshire, in other words, right after this. And then as to the trial today, it was a very interesting day. Uh, As you probably noticed, it's a big story that the uh, witness today, the person I never knew, I never had anything to do with. It's a totally rigged deal. This whole thing is rigged. Election interference. But this is a person I have no idea until this happened, obviously. I have no idea who she was, and nor could I care less. It's a rigged deal. It's a made-up, fabricated story. Well, they found out today that she got rid of a lot of evidence, as you probably noticed. She got rid of massive amounts of evidence. And in addition to that, she had a rifle or a gun, uh, because she said she bought gun bullets or rifle bullets. And it was the opposite, I guess, of her gun. And uh, was it licensed? No, it wasn't licensed. So I guess she's got a difficult problem. That's going to be her problem. But she has a gun or a a rifle. She didn't really explain which. She might have both because she said she bought rifle bullets. So uh, and it's totally unlicensed. So I assume that's a problem. But the judge was protecting her. He didn't want to go there. We don't want to go there. We don't want to. If that were me, it would be a different story. But with her. Uh, The judge is totally protective of them. And frankly, anybody in that court would see it. It's frankly, it's a disgrace. That's probably one of the reasons our country is going to hell. So the big take today was that she deleted and destroyed massive amounts of evidence. And we think that the both trials should be thrown out because it's ridiculous. They should be thrown out. And I, frankly, am the one that suffered damages. I should be given money, given damages. And that's where that is. And with that being said, I'm heading out to New Hampshire. Thank you very much for being back here. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. Nice to see you, Paul. All right, you've been listening to former President Donald Trump speaking in New York after testimony wrapped for the day in the defamation case against him, which we covered earlier in the show. Trump continued his attacks against the judge, uh, whom he and his lawyer both sparred with in court today. He attacked or tried to attack the credibility of E. Jean Carroll. Uh, Carroll is asking for more than $10 million after a jury already found Trump liable for sexually abusing and defaming her and awarding her $5 million dollars. Uh, let's bring in CNN legal analyst uh, Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, uh, your reaction? Did you hear him say anything that could be used against Trump? I have to say, I am not an experienced lawyer. I'm not a lawyer of any sort. Um, but I've never heard anyone uh, rail against judges case after case after case after case like, uh, like former President Trump. So, Jake, to your first question, could any of that be used against Trump? Of course, he continues to attack, defame E. Jean Carroll. Everything he just said, that could be played in court tomorrow if the plaintiffs want to do it. I do want to correct 
two things that Donald Trump said here. First of all, he called Judge Kaplan, quote, a radical Trump hater. I appeared in front of Judge Kaplan dozens of times, probably hundreds of times if you add it all up. The man is apolitical. I had no idea until Donald Trump said it just now. I didn't even know what president appointed Lewis Kaplan to the bench. He shows no political bent either way. He is a professional. And by the way, worth noting, all federal judges from the Supreme Court on down to the district court, they all have life tenure. They don't need to please anyone or play any politics. That is just a completely unfounded attack on Judge Kaplan. The other thing that Trump did was he basically said, again, I never had anything to do with E. Jean Carroll. He can continue to deny that if he wants, but legally the posture we're in is that the first jury resulted in a verdict against Donald Trump and a $5 million finding. And in this case, it's already been established legally that Donald Trump did do what Jean Carroll accused him of. He did defame her. There was a sexual assault. So really the only question here is damages. So his comments about E. Jean Carroll are contrary to what juries have already found and what the law would say. All right, Ellie, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN Chief Legal Affairs Correspondent Paula Reed, who was at Trump's news conference just now. Paula, uh, your takeaway from what you just heard, it had been billed as a press conference that we were gonna, he was gonna take questions, but he, he didn't take any questions. Yeah, Jake, I was going to take issue with the description uh, of this as a press conference. It said this was a statement uh, to cameras, a, a bit of a mini monologue before he heads, ha heads up to New Hampshire. Look, I mean, the return on investment for him for showing up here in New York as he goes into court, he and his lawyers sort of refuse to abide by the rules that apply to everyone else, either the legal rules of evidence or just the rules of decorum, not being disruptive when there is a witness on the stand. And then he comes before the cameras and argues that the system is unfair, that this judge is, quote, deranged. So this is the political message that he wants to send. And this is how he is using his time. He could be in New Hampshire. He could be on the campaign trail. But instead, coming to New York to really try to amplify this argument that he is somehow the victim of an unfair judicial system when what we saw today is just he and his lawyers refused to follow the, the rules that anyone else would be asked to abide by, especially in a federal courtroom. And Paul, I, I'm wondering if he said anything else that is worth uh, fact-checking, Ellie bringing up the idea that the Judge Kaplan in, in Ellie's experience is actually apolitical. Uh, Mr. Trump said uh, something about E. Jean Carroll destroying evidence. Um, is that true? Is there anything else that we need to correct uh, as is uh, Mr. Trump's want? Yeah, I believe what he was referring to there was uh, under cross-examination, E. Jean Carroll was asked about some of the messages, some of the threats that she received in the wake of Trump's denials about her allegations, and she did not keep all of them. She deleted some of them. So I believe that is what he is referring to. Now, when it comes to evidence, well, this is all about damages, right? The trial was back in the spring. And during that trial, the jury found that he sexually abused E. Jean Carroll and defamed her and awarded her $5 million. Right now, we are just talking about damages related to a 2019 statement. So in terms of the evidence being presented, everything speaks to the harm to her reputation, uh, the fear that she felt. So I guess this is evidence of damages, but it's not like she was out destroying evidence. She just didn't keep some of the many, many threats that she received on social media. Yeah. All right. I appreciate it. Paula Reed, CNN's Kristen Holmes is in New Hampshire. Uh, she covers the Trump campaign for us. Trump is scheduled to head to the Granite State next. Kristen, do we expect a, a, a repeat of this at his campaign event tonight? Well, generally, he does talk about his legal issues, but I do want to point out a couple of things that I heard from the political side during that speech, one being that Democrats can vote in New Hampshire primary. This is something he has been saying as he's been watching the poll numbers of Nikki Haley's rise, seeing them get closer and closer. He has continued to say that Haley is recruiting Democrats to come out and infiltrate the Republican 
uh, primary. And just to make very clear, Democrats cannot vote in the Republican primary in New Hampshire. Independents and registered Republicans can. Now, they do believe this is partly why Nikki Haley's polls are rising, because independents don't all identify as conservative. There are also left-leaning independents, but his team is keenly aware of that. The other thing to point out is this idea that he is leading uh, Nikki Haley in the polls by a huge margin. That is incorrect from every advisor that I have talked to. They are working very hard to try and stop her from having any momentum, something that Donald Trump knows and has continued to say on the campaign trail that as he is attacking her, going after her on multiple fronts. Now, I do want to point out that one of the things he said in his in his speech, I guess is what we're calling it, was that the judge would not stop the trial or delay the trial because of his wife Melania's mother's funeral. We should point out that this is all voluntary. He does not have to be in court. He is choosing to be in court. Part of this is a campaign strategy. There is a reason that he set up press conference or remarks after he was in court, and that is because, as we know, there were no cameras in court. This is a way for him to take control of the media narrative as well as take all the oxygen out of the 2024 race. That is why he is using these court appearances, and that's what we are told by advisors, that they are maximizing this. So that's something else to note here. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. And speaking of the great state of New Hampshire, I'm going to head there and moderate a new CNN town hall with Ambassador Nikki Haley. Uh, in New Hampshire, ahead of next week's primary there. That's tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN and streaming on Max. Next here on The Lead, that showdown at the border between the Biden administration and the state of Texas and a fight over a city park in Eagle Pass, Texas. Will the feds take action at the end of the day? As promised, we're going to go live to Eagle Pass next. In our national lead, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a Republican, just responded to a cease and desist request from the Department of Homeland Security, saying Texas, quote, will not surrender in its border standoff with the Biden administration, and then it will continue to block U.S. Border Patrol from accessing part of the U.S.-Mexico border in Eagle Pass, Texas. Last week, as you may recall, the Texas National Guard seized control and fenced off a park in Eagle Pass, blocking U.S. Border Patrol agents from entering. The Department of Homeland Security had wanted access restored no later than close of business today. Rosa Flores is there in Eagle Pass. So Rosa, what, what else did Attorney General Paxton have to say? Well, uh, Attorney General Paxton is doubling down and saying that Texas is not surrendering. Let me show you what he means. We just got access to Shelby Park. This um, is uh, thanks to the Texas National Guard. And you can see how Texas is doubling down on these efforts. What you're seeing are members of the Texas National Guard re-engineering ways to make sure that migrants don't cross into Shelby Park illegally. You can see them deploying some razor wire up there. And if you look my way, you can see that they have staged also some fencing that is going to be added to this side of these containers. And according to the Texas National Guard, this is to reinforce these barriers to make sure that the illegal crossings don't come uh, this way. Now, the Rio Grande is just on the other side of these containers that you're taking a look at. Now, th what makes this so extraordinary, Jake, is that this is the state of Texas doubling down on not allowing Border Patrol to enter this area. Uh, according to Texas National Guard, Border Patrol has access to a boat ramp that's nearby. 
But other than that, they don't have access. That is the big battle uh, that's going on right now in regards to access to this area. Now to the big question, does this stop illegal immigration, everything that you're seeing here? The answer to that is no. According to a law enforcement source, uh, some of the numbers of, of migrant apprehensions in this area, they ebb and flow. Um, they've been up, they've been down. But what smugglers are actually doing is they're circumventing this entire area completely and they're pushing migrants to cross illegally further upriver, Jake, and this is in a residential area. I talked to one of the residents there who confirmed, indeed, that they're seeing large groups of migrants enter that area illegally. And again, they circumvent this area where you see all this razor wire and fencing and still enter the United States illegally, Jake. All right, Rosa Flores in Eagle Pass, Texas. Thanks so much. Coming up, what CNN's K-File uncovered. Uh, when he tracked the, the comments about abortion from the Republican frontrunner for governor in North Carolina, the current lieutenant governor, what he's saying now sounds nothing, nothing like he did just a few years ago. Stay with us. In our politics lead, as we head to the November elections, the Republican frontrunner for North Carolina's governor's race appears to be changing his tune on his passport for abortion bans with zero exceptions. Listen to the way Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson talked about abortion between 2020 to 2023. For me, there is no compromise on abortion. It makes no difference to me why or how that child ended up in that womb. That child deserves his life. That's why a lot of people would tell me, don't say abortion is murder. Guess what? Abortion is murder! Now abortion, you all know how I feel about abortion. I want North Carolina to be the most pro-life state in the nation, hands down. But now, according to CNN's investigative team, K-File, the lieutenant governor avoids saying the word abortion at all. Let's bring in K-File uh, senior editor, Andrew <coughs> Kaczynski. Andrew, why the change? Well, it's because abortion has become such a losing issue for Republicans, and Robinson says now he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. But our team found time and again, Robinson voiced support for the harshest anti-abortion laws without exceptions for rape or incest. He compared it to slavery and genocide. He said that women who end pregnancies, even after just 24 hours, were murderers and called abortion providers the butchers of humanity. Now, Jake, the backdrop to all of this is that Robinson now says he never said he supported banning abortion uh, without exceptions for rape or incest. He's, he's sort of uh, toned down his rhetoric uh, and said that he favors bans uh, but supports exceptions for rape or incest in there. And he's also even admitted that he himself paid for an abortion for his wife, who was then his girlfriend in the 1980s, which is a decision that he now says that he regrets. And Andrew, we should know that this is hardly the lieutenant governor's only controversy. Well, that's right. It's far from the only controversy for him. We previously reported that he, mo he mocked some of the teenage uh, activists from the Parkland shooting in 2018. He called them spoiled little bastards and prostitutes because of their gun control advocacy. Robinson was uh, a very... Um, very against those gun control activists, very pro-gun. Uh, and he said that he opposed the civil rights movement. He said that it caused people to lose freedoms and even speculated that the founders of Planned Parenthood uh, and the, the uh, anti-abortion or pro-abortion movement were witches. Take a listen to this. 
They were witches, all of them. Yeah, they, they were. They were. They and I and I have no doubt. Uh, it would not shock me one bit if they were uh, not Satanists uh, involved in witchcraft. So we did reach out to his office. We asked about those clips. Uh, they didn't respond on any of the things he said, but they said he now supports um, a so-called heartbeat bill, which is typically an abortion ban of six to ten weeks with exceptions for rape and incest. We should also note that he has been in the past a Holocaust denier and has attacked Jewish bankers. Uh, I mean, he's he's been pretty anti-Semitic, very openly so, uh, in his uh, social media posts in the past as well. Yeah, that's right. He has a history of, of a lot of controversial statements. I don't know uh, the particular ones that you were referencing, but time and again, uh, this has come up with him where things that he said on his Facebook, in speeches, on social media uh, has now, uh, again, we just see it because he's running for governor uh, and he's trying to moderate his rhetoric. Well, he's not the nominee yet. Andrew Kaczynski, thank you so much. Appreciate it. After more than 100 days of Hamas holding hostages in captivity, one man has four family members still being held, including the very youngest hostage who turns one year old today. And that man joins me next. Back with our world lead, Israel believes 105 hostages are still alive in Gaza, and at least a third have chronic illnesses that require medication. Just moments ago, an IDF spokesperson said he cannot guarantee that medicine reaches those hostages. Despite news of this deal brokered by Qatar, brokered by Qatar Hamas apparently agreed to do it as long as Palestinians in Gaza also get aid, uh, at least a thousand boxes of medicine for every one to the Israelis. Uh, four of the hostages are members of the Bibas family. They were kidnapped by Hamas terrorists on October 7th from the kibbutz near Oz. Parents Yardane and Shiri, four-year-old Ariel, and Kfir, whose first birthday is today. Jimmy Miller, a cousin of Sherry Bibas, joins us now. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, we're seeing images of a, a sad celebration of Kfir's uh, first birthday at Kibbutz near Oz. Um, what is your message to the world as Kfir turns one while being held by Hamas? Okay, so first of all, good evening from Tel Aviv. I think that Aza could be nice like Tel Aviv if there was, you know, human persons over there. Okay, uh, what am I thinking? So, actually I'm thinking that it's very, very bad that child that have only one years old is captivicate and is in the, you know, in Gaza. Kfir uh, Bivas is not the enemy of the Hamas. The Hamas don't have any rules, you know, any rules, even from the Quran, because in the Quran you cannot do damage to kids, you cannot do damage to animals, you cannot do damage to all people, and you cannot do damage to women. So the Hamas breaks all the rules of the Islam. Uh, okay, so yeah, it's very, very sad that it's first birthday, it's over there in Gaza. Uh, I don't know if even Shiri know that it's the day of his birthday. We don't know if, the, if she knows the day uh, that he needs to celebrate his birthday. Uh, probably they don't, you know, celebrate it somehow over there. And we are very, very sad, all the family, about the situation of all the hostages and about the situation of our family. What's your reaction to the news of a deal that supposedly will allow medicine 
to get to the hostages? And do the boys, Kfir and Ariel, do they need any medication? Of course. Uh, Ariel have uh, atopic dermatitis in his skin. And he, in Israel, he all the time gets uh, creams and things like that. Uh, and Kfir, you know, is a small, small baby. He probably needs uh, vitamins, he needs his formulas, he needs, you know, anything that a small kid needs, you know, like diapers, like cream for his teeth that's growing right now. Uh, and it's terrible to know that uh, they don't get it until now. Does I really hope that the Hamas, you know, get it somehow and bring them to them this, this you know, minimum things that they need. Does this announcement... And if you are asking me... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. If you are asking me about the medication that I get, I will not believe to nothing uh, before that I'm going to see that they really get the medication. Uh, we don't know who's going to bring them the medication, if they're going to change the medication, if they're going to give them, you know, a plasma medication, not, a not will medication. And, you know, the situation that I get from here, from Israel, before a... Uh, 103 days, it's not the same situation that they are right now, the people over there. The people right now over there are, are very, very, you know, skin. They are very sad. Uh, they probably have, uh, you know, many, many others, you know, they are sick and many, many other things. Not the same like they were, they were sit, sitting that uh, when they been over here in Israel. It's so been it's, it's a completely different situation. It's been more than 100 days since your family members were kidnapped from kibbutz near Oz. Yeah. Tell us what you miss most yeah. about your cousins. Uh, I miss to see them uh, laughing. I miss to see them uh, hiding, running, uh, doing uh, funny things, you know, running in the kibbutz. Uh, send us a nice pictures of the holidays that they celebrate. Uh, you know, I, I would like to see the first steps of a Kfir walking. I would like to see the first uh, teeth, you know, growing. We would like to see many, many things that we cannot see it and we don't know what's the situation. We don't have any, any conditions and any proof about nothing about them. Do you think that the Netanyahu and government said do you think the Netanyahu government is doing enough to get the hostages home I think that he tried to do the enough things to bring them home but you know the Hamas uh, thinks that is very very tough and he makes he tried to make everything complicated and uh, that's the situation every time that we are start to dealing something with them so they want more and, uh, you know, so it's very, very difficult to negotiate with them. It's, they are very, very problematic, these guys, you know. The things you can, the proof is the things that they make over here, you know, in the same day, so you can see that they are not humans. If they were humans, so they should understand that they make, they make a big, big mistake in the same day, and they can say sorry somehow but they don't know to say sorry and they don't want to say sorry. They start and they begin to, to make the same things that they make before. Jimmy Miller, um, thank you so much. And we say happy birthday uh, to Kfir.
in captivity. It's not so happy. It's not no. so happy, you know. It's not so happy because we don't know really the situation. But we really hope that everybody over there in the United States that they have a little bit power against the the world, they will start really moving something so we can get our hostages back at home as soon as possible. Yeah. Because every day over there, it's you know. It's going to kill them. Every day we have less and less and less hostages over there. And, it, yeah. you know, I think that in every, other in every other country in the world, if the Hamas was exist over there and, and he was making these things, uh, as that didn't exist in 24 hours, you know, any other country in the world, was, as I was disappeared, yeah. disappeared from the map. Yeah. Just disappeared from the map. We honor but, the... Uh, you know, we are different. We honor the sad birthday of Kfir, the sad birthday. You're right, it's yes, not a happy very, birthday. Very, very sad birthday. The, the most, I think that is the most sad birthday in all over the world, in all the times, in all the times, because Kfir Bivas is the most captivated kid in all over the world. There was never in the history kid that, you know, nine months goes to the captivity. Yeah. It's the first one. Yeah. And, you know, the Hamas make it, and now any other countries see that the Hamas make it so they can make it too. They should be set free. If it's happened one time, it can happen more times. Yeah, yeah. they should it be set free. More times. They should be set free right now. Set free right now. Jimmy Miller. Soon as possible. And yeah. my calling, I'm calling over here from the president, Mr. Biden, please do all the best to free all the hostages and yeah. my family, please. Thank do you. Do so all the best that you can make. Thank you, Jimmy Thank Miller. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. International lead and something of a good news story for you today. A dramatic rescue on a frozen pond in Cambridge, Vermont. The body camera video looks disturbing, but please know this all ends well. The little girl here is rescued and makes a full recovery. Here's the video from one month ago today. Two girls fell through the ice into freezing water. A homeowner nearby saved the six-year-old but could not get to the eight-year-old. The homeowner called 911 and Vermont State Trooper Michelle Archer arrived without hesitating. She dove in the freezing waters to save the eight-year-old, and that Vermont State Trooper, Michelle Archer, is with me now. Uh, Trooper Archer, thank you so much. Uh, do you know how long um, the eight-year-old girl had been underwater before you got in there, or did you just get there and go? Uh, I basically just got, you know, got there and went. Um, it took me about four minutes to get to the scene. Uh, before that, I don't know how long she'd been in there. The video is is remarkable to watch and rather uh, it kind of makes me cold just looking at it. When you arrived at the pond, what was going through your mind? Uh, you know, at that point, I, I wasn't entirely sure what the situation was that we had. Um, I came in contact with a homeowner who said there was still, you know, a child in the pond. And at that point, something just took took over and um, I just acted. I knew we had to get it, her out of there as soon as possible. What was it like diving into that freezing pond? Have you ever done such a thing before? Uh, you know, I grew up on uh, Lake Champlain, so there were many early springs we'd been in the water, but uh, nothing, you know, as high stake as this. Have you spoken to the family? Do you, do you know how the two girls who fell into the pond are, are doing firsthand? We've heard, they're, we've heard they're doing okay, but I'm wondering your firsthand uh, conversations, mm -hmm. if you have any. Uh, I, we haven't yet. Um, I think it will be in the near future, but, you know, everyone keeps telling me they're doing great, and um, that's the best that we could have hoped for. What's your reaction when you watch your own body cam video? 
there's a lot of things that I didn't I didn't remember or didn't notice at the time. Um, I don't remember feeling the water being cold, but as I watch my video and as others can, you know, hear my breathing change. Um, so there, there were small things like that that I didn't quite notice in the moment. You're in Vermont. I'd imagine kids use, or I know, kids use lakes and ponds to play on all the time. You grew up on Lake Champlain. Um, is this something that state troopers and law enforcement and EMTs up there have to train for? I would think that the incidents like this happen more often than, than they should. Uh, I wouldn't say we specifically train for this type of event or call, but um, I think a lot of our training, um, Super you know, we can use a lot of the training that we have. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, you know, we can, you know, use it for this type of call, but nothing specific to this. Well, Trooper Michelle Archer, we salute you. You saved the life of a young girl. That's a lot. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you. I Our coverage it. continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow live from New Hampshire. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.